First Church Charlotte. Praise the Lord, everyone. Before you, before you completely get out of the social moment, elbow your neighbors. Say, I expect a lot of amens from you today. So, you know, Pastor Nathan gets long-winded if it's quiet. And so I need you to help me get out of here and get some good food as soon as possible. We have a lot of guests today. Thank you for taking a chance on us. We want to make you feel at home, if at all possible. Those of you joining us online, thank you for your time. Uh, Our hearts are open to you. Whenever you want to come, be a part of the family. We are here for it. So God bless you all. We are especially blessed to have uh, my mother, the great bishopress. Right here, Linda M. Also known as Linda M. The Mighty, a.k.a. Great One, a.k.a. Hard Worker, a.k.a. Church Enforcer, a.k.a. Command Sergeant. I love you, Mom. I want you to know I wore this coat for you today. My mom bought me this coat. And, um, yeah. I need another one if you could work that out. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verse number 21. For our sake, he made him, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So say that with me. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we might become the righteousness of God. There is a righteousness swap that is happening here. God takes our filthy rags of pitiful, (laughs) righteous performance, (laughs) and he swaps them with his perfect life lived for us. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, We have spent the last four weeks going through the life of Joseph, a series that we entitled Coat of Many Colors. It could also be called uh, The Many Coats of Joseph because in the life of Joseph, there are three coats that he is given and uh, he loses. Well, two of them he loses uh, and the third coat he keeps. The first coat, you will remember, is given to him by his father. It is the most expensive garment in the household and it raises his status to a place of unique appreciation and affection. It is a sign to all the brethren, all his brothers, his siblings, that he has a a special status with his father. What's interesting is this is actually a demonstration of the dysfunction in the family, not a demonstration of a functional family. And in the manner of all dysfunction, it does not exist simply as its own thing, but it's always a river, and dysfunction is taking you somewhere. One of the reasons why we need to build altars in our life, repent of our sins, start living right in response to the love of God is because the dysfunction takes us somewhere. It's not free. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So let me make a quick appeal for your 
commitment and your consecration to spiritual and moral purity. Is that okay? Uh, Our transgressions have a downstream effect upon us. They're not free. And we have to allow the blood of Jesus to continually lead us back to repentance, continually take our hand and pick us up in new faith and new hope. I don't care how many times you failed. It's Sunday. That means it's time for you to get back up. We preach a message of hope. I have good news to deliver to you, and I say it's the Lord's day, and he knew you were going to do all the dumb things you did last week before you did them. He knew. He does not know you in time. You know him in time. He's not a creature of time. Time exists in him. So he knows you as a complete whole, the end from the beginning. He knows every dumb thing you're ever going to do, and he said you were worth it and died for you. I'm not saying you're worth it to me. (laughs) I'm not saying you're worth it to you. I'm saying you're worth it to your creator, your heavenly father who loves you. He knew what you were going to do, and he loved you in spite of it. That is the great heavenly invitation for you to go back to an altar and say, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Cleanse me, purify my heart. This week, I'm starting anew as a beneficiary of divine love. And so uh, we, all of us, we all of us uh, see in the life of Joseph so many different themes that speak to our life. Um, he loses this first coat that is a coat of status. It's unearned status. It represents his father's wealth, his father's place, and his father's uh, accomplishments. It does not represent him's. He gets it as a gift, and his brethren hate him for it. He will lose this coat when he's sold into slavery. Uh, Now there is no papa to rescue him in his troubles, and he has to earn his own garments. Uh, He starts out where he is nothing but a slave in the household of the chief uh, soldier of uh, Pharaoh's bodyguard, Potiphar, Potiphar's Potiphar's chief chief of the palace guard. And he starts as a slave, but he has a fundamental insight into theology that many people don't have. Joseph does. And what is that? Just because things are difficult doesn't mean God isn't with me. And so I have to work today. It doesn't feel like God is with me. It doesn't look like God is with me, but I'm going to live today as if God is with me. Why? Because he told me he would be with me. And so the Bible tells us in spite of his fallen state, he works hard, and the Bible says God was with him. Now, I know a lot of people don't believe that. They don't believe bad things can happen to you and God be with you, but I want you to know if you'll just read the Bible, you may have missed a few things the first time you read it. God can be with you in your troubles, with you in your sorrows, with you in your difficulties. God will recycle the whole mess of you. Your tears, your defeats, your errors, your embarrassments, all the skeletons in your closet. It's like my old my, my son told Ellery the other day, my, my little girl, he said, don't let this terrify you, but there's a skeleton hiding inside of you. <laughs> All of us have skeletons hiding inside of us. Can I get a witness? And so uh, he has to earn this now, but God is with him in the sorrow. God is with him in the loss, and everything he touches is blessed. Um, And he rises to Potiphar's uh, chief of staff, and 
Uh, he's given the markings of his status, but when Potiphar's wife seeks to use him as a objectified tool to fulfill her lusts, what does, what does he do? He flees from her, she grabs his coat, and he leaves his coat behind. It would have been easier just to go along and be used and make some self-justifying, nihilistic philosophical argument like this. I don't want to be this way, but they're forcing me. If, I, if I've heard, uh, you wouldn't believe how many Christians I've heard justify their decisions by some version of, I didn't want to live this way, but they're forcing me. No, they're not forcing you. <laughs> Joseph shows that he, he, he desires to serve and live his life for an audience of one. It doesn't matter if I can fool Potiphar. I cannot fool God. And I would rather be right with God in prison than wrong with God as the head of Potiphar's household. This is the pursuit of moral purity. He loses that second coat. Now in prison, he uh, will be forgotten for a long time, even though God is with him in the prison. A lot of people don't believe that God can be with you when you've fallen far. Because if God was with you, how did you fall so far? You need to read the Bible. God was with him, even in spite of his setback and his sorrow, and the Lord begins to bless his efforts, and he rises to a secretary, as it were, a head um, administrative director of the prison. He has prophetic insights. He interprets dreams, but he's forgotten about and forgotten about and forgotten about until one day God brings him to the attention of the Pharaoh, and when he comes to the Pharaoh, you want to know what they do? They clean him up, and they give him a new coat. This is the third coat. He will become the premier of all the empire of Egypt. And in many ways, you can see the lessons of Joseph's lives in three coats that he gained, lost, until he kept the one God wanted him to have. And God said, I put you here. So that we might save many people alive. Now, I, I, I thought I was done with those three coats in the story of Joseph, but um, let me kind of give you a quick summation, uh, and then I'll give you the fourth point, uh, or the fourth insight, the fourth reflection, sermon, if you will. Um, unexpected, unplanned, but uh, very much a part of this. In the life of Joseph, number one, we see perseverance. Terrible suffering, yes. Sold into slavery, yes. Never loses his faith. Never sins. We are unaware of one sin that Joseph makes. Um, we need perseverance, but I don't know if any of us are doing as good as Joseph. You see forgiveness, not just received, but given, because he uh, forgives his brother, their brother in their cruel betrayal. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Why? Because he had a plan to save much people alive. Yes, uh, you see prudence in the life of Joseph. You, you need prudence in your life. I need prudence in my life. It's difficult to get a blessing on Sunday when our financial life is a walking jadaster or a rolling dumpster fire. You get a blessing in church and you rock, walk right back out into the mess. The Lord wants you to have the discipline of a steward that you might flourish in every aspect of your life moving right along. I need prudence. Joseph does not just show it, but he shows it to the whole nation of Israel and it goes like this. For seven years, we're going to have more than we need. But God's not given us more than we need so we can party like it's 1999. He's given us more than we need so we can be ready when trouble comes. Just 
just let that be a blessing to all of you right there. You see prudence in his life. You see integrity. He will not sin even when he knows he probably could get away with it or justify it at least to himself. Uh, He shows compassion, not just to his brethren, but to the thousands of people who come to survive the famine. You see trust in God in spite of the ups and downs of his life. You see courage, the courage it takes to be who he is. In other words, Joseph's life life is stunning uh, in its virtues like perseverance, mercy, wisdom, integrity, compassion, humility, courage, and his life becomes an impeccable example of faithful, virtuous leadership despite setbacks, sorrow, and disaster. How are you doing being like Joseph? Um, I'm not doing very good. Uh, When trouble comes, I tend to sit up at night and worry. I know y'all don't. Y'all are more spiritual than me. When I get a bad report from the doctor, I kind of I tend to wake up and worry. When people don't like me, I sit around and suck my thumb and feel sorry for myself. I know y'all wouldn't do that. Y'all are so saved. But, you know, in this church, we put the least uh, as the lead pastor. And uh, we start calling him the least pastor. This is Pastor Nathan. He's our least pastor. Um, here we are. I'm just having fun. I'm not, I'm, I'm just cutting up. Um, so Joseph becomes a type of Jesus Christ in that the images of his life in prophetic fulfillment will be symbolized in the life of Jesus himself, betrayed by his brethren, betrayed by the people who should be on his side, protect him. Jesus came to his own and his own received him, them not. But praise God to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons. Somebody say yes. The sons of God. Joseph's life is in all points exemplary. Let me say it again. We do not know of one time he had a bad spirit. Do you know how hard that is? Not one time he cussed somebody good. Some of y'all cussed somebody on the way to church this morning. Anyway, it got quiet. That was a little too quiet. I think maybe I hit a nerve there. It's hard to keep our tempers in check. Can somebody say amen? It's hard to be right when our life is filled with wrong. It's hard to forgive people who tried to kill you. Joseph is an exemplary life. That is uh, the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis. And if you end the story there, you are left with a towering example of how we ought to all do better as quickly as possible. You're left with this towering example of how all of us can have a better attitude, more faith in God, more trust in the face of setback, and we need to do it as soon as possible, and someone say, help me, Lord. It's a towering, stunning, humbling example of spiritual, moral, and leadership excellence. Now, let's talk about chapter 38 of the book of Genesis. It is not an accident that the story told right after the story of Joseph um, is the story of Judah. It's not an accident that this story is just as ugly 
as the story of Judah is beautiful, the story of Joseph is beautiful. This story is so awkward that if I were to give details of the story, um, more of you would be uncomfortable than were comfortable. Uh, Now, I know if you were home watching TV, you're used to seeing uh, awkward stories there. Sometimes that's why you guys watch them, because they're awkward and weird. Uh, And and that sounds really accusatory, it doesn't. But I aim it at all of us. Um, uh, But in church house, we're supposed to act like the world isn't ugly. Um, The Bible does not shirk away from the ugly. It just makes all us preachers, particularly us Southern preachers, awkward when we have to tell the stories of ugly. Um, The Lord wants you to know that he sees the heart of humankind. We're not fooling him on anything. In literary criticism, when a story is told that is so opposite, uh, it becomes a point in itself. The contrast is so profound that the contrast itself becomes a literary point made by uh, the author. And that is the case here in the story of Judah. I would like to ask the Lord, if I were so indulged, why after a story of such beauty and perfection like the story of Joseph, would you make us all suffer through a story of Judah with its awkwardness and its ugliness? Uh, The point of the story, let me see if I can tell it in a rough way. Uh, Judah had three sons, and the wife of the oldest son um, needed to be cared for because her husband died. He was so evil, the Bible tells us that God smote him. That's how evil he was. And in the time, and it's not just in this part of the world, but in much of the world at this time, there is this type of social care where your brother's family becomes your responsibility. And you are supposed to take his children as your own children, and you're supposed to take his wives as your own wives, that there might be an umbrella of care. Even if their wives were young and did not yet have children, you took them as your own wives so they would be able to have children. This was how the family was cared for in this time. Again, not just in Jewish uh, tradition and traditional inheritance, but in many of the places in um, uh, the many of the societies in the world, this was the way it was. And so uh, they had a moral obligation to do this. The second son takes them in, but not really. He will not, he will use his brother's uh, wife as though she were um, a concubine, but he will not let her have children. If you want to delve into the details of the awkward story, your homework is to read chapter number 38 of the book of Genesis. This is denied to her. Finally, her status falls to a place where even Judah, I told you it was an ugly story. This is the grandfather. This is an ugly story. I apologize in advance. I'll try to use words that are not easily understandable if we have any um, young minds here uh, that are not thinking about unicorns right now, okay? So uh, it goes like this. Even the grandfather who had responsibility as head of the household, even if he didn't have to take her as his wife, obviously, um, and he began to treat her as though she wasn't a part of the family. They would not take care of her. She was cast out on her own. And ultimately, he treats her as though she were a woman of ill repute. How's that for a vague uh, statement? And um, when she comes up awkward with child by Judah, the grandfather, it all comes to a head. God is not happy. He tries to blame her. She refuses the blame and provides 
provides tr- proof that her children are his children, at which point, in his defense, he apologizes in his point. It's ugly, but it's never too ugly to start apologizing and start making things right. In his defense, he apologizes, and he says, I have been wrong, not just wrong. I have been wronger than you. Any blame I could put on you is less than the blame I could put on me. That's how the story ends. Is it awkward? Yes. Is it ugly? Yes. Now, reminder, on one hand, we have the inspiring narrative of Joseph. He is heroic. He is essentially perfect. He is faithful to the Lord in the face of opposition, false accusation. Whatever task he is given, he does it to the best of his ability as unto the Lord. There's no mark against his character. There's nothing against him. He is as sinless in the narrative. Now, we understand theologically that all have sinned, but in the narrative, he is as sinless as it is possible to be. Furthermore, his life becomes a prophetic symbol and type of Christ who will come. That's how perfect the story is. That's how beautiful the story is. There's just one problem. That's not where most people live. I wish that I could act like most of you have uh, simultaneously won the Eagle Scout Award and the Pulitzer Prize while waiting to be flown for the Nobel Prize. Uh, But the truth is, that's not the life most of us live. Our life doesn't look like that. Our life has this awkwardness to it. Our life has error to it. Our life has, yes, ugliness to it. If the story standard is Joseph, oh Lord, who can stand? Is there room in this kingdom for people who have a less than perfect track record? Is there room in this house of worship for people who have made more bad decisions than good decisions? Is there room in this economy of hope for a truth that says, though your sins be as scarlet. Man, I wish I could preach better. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. Is there any hope for the person who stands in the altar and smites himself on the breast It says, have mercy on me, oh God, a sinner. Or are we a self-celebratory society that celebrates the coat of many colors given to us of someone else's status, someone else's goodness? someone else's righteousness, someone else's accomplishment, and we preen around with a coat we couldn't afford, a justice we didn't deserve, a hope we don't know how to celebrate, but we know how to fluff that coat up, don't we? (laughs) Why would God put the story of Judah after the story of Joseph? I think maybe he did that for me. my life is so far from perfect. (laughs) If it was all Joseph, I don't think I'd have any right being in this house. If it was all Joseph, I don't know that there would be many of us with courage to come to an altar. If it was all Joseph, I think we all might kind of tuck our tail and hide in the corners and hope no one calls us on us to sing. (sighs) If the righteous are scarcely saved, where does that leave the sinner? 
Genesis 38 is so out of place. It is as though, um, let's say your brother has won the Eagle Scout Award as a kid, then was a Rhodes Scholar to Oxford University, then won the Congressional Medal of Honor, and then um, was celebrating the Congressional Medal of Honor, and you, the family drunk, showed up, and then you went from person to person telling every embarrassing story to about the family, about your parents, about your brother, and uh, he didn't want to ask you to leave, but pretty soon security had to ask you to leave because you were embarrassing everybody, not just the family. That's how ugly the story of Judah is next to the story of Joseph. Even when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, he would rather be right in prison than wrong in a house of blessing. That's not where most of us live. Most of us are more like Judah. There's a lot of convenience in our life. A lot of responsibilities we should take care of, kind of, if we remember. A lot of obligations that because we don't keep them, other people pay the price. Uh, our lives are like, like Judah. Is there hope, my brothers and sisters, for Judah? Uh, or is this just a song for Joseph? Um, I want to take you to the New Testament. And I want to take you to the central issue, uh, the tension between the religious community and Jesus' style of ministry in that. And I don't want to just beat up on Pharisees. That's easy to do. Everybody does it. They are his existential, philosophical, theological enemies in the New Testament, which is why uh, he only speaks harshly of one group of people, and that is them. And he pronounces the woes, the seven woes, the seven curses upon them. He doesn't even think he can save them. And when his disciples ask him what they should do about him, uh, he tells them, leave them alone. And then he says that most famous scripture that most of us use out of context. He was telling his disciples how to deal with the Pharisees when he quoted this. The blind lead the blind, and they all fall in the ditch. So you should just leave them alone. So here's Jesus in this philosophical, theological um, tension with the religious community. And his time is not spent with them. His time is spent with sinners. It's a big problem. Um, you can read it in all the Gospels. It's a big, big problem. And uh, they don't like it. And uh, he doesn't seem to be bothered by it. Um, and when they accuse him of something, he says, look, it's, it's the people who are sick who need a physician. Now, are the Pharisees not sinful also? Yes, but they cannot admit it. And therefore, they will not receive the tender care of a spiritual healer, do you see? And if you will not acknowledge your need for healing, there's no point in spending time with the healer. And so Jesus says, look, here's the deal. At least they admit they need salvation. At least they admit they need a righteous covering in their life. This is the tension. Who is the gospel for? Is the gospel primarily in some way a celebratory structure and a reassurance word for religious people? Or is it good news for people who can't afford to go to the wedding? They don't have anything to wear and no one's invited them. And so they hide in the highways and byways of the world and they have neither access nor appropriate attire. And the Lord of the feast says, look, okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, the people who should be here have missed the point of their place. They had a place given to them. They missed the point of their place. And therefore, they're unwilling to come to this marriage supper. So I want you to go 
out, not to the Josephs of the world. I want you to find the Judas of the world. <laughs> I want you to find the halt, the lame, the broken. <laughs> I want you to find the people who their life is a mess. And of such, of such will I build my kingdom. Not many noble, not, not many mighty, not many fancified, glorified, edificied. Ooh, almost invented a word there. If I keep it up, we'll get an interpretation here in the service. Um, what am I talking about? It is a hope, a gospel of hope, not to the people who deserve it. Those people are deceived about their status. It's a gospel of hope to the person who's surprised. Okay. You want to talk to me? You mean you want me to sing the next solo at First Church? Well, thank you. I believe I will. I, I didn't know that y'all realized I was one of the greatest singers in North America. Me? Me? Are you sure? Oh, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. It wasn't me after all. Who is the gospel for? The story of Judah is ugly. But let me show you the power of a redeemer. I don't want to just quote Jesus saying, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. I don't want to just quote Jesus as saying, they that be well have no need of a physician. I don't want to just quote Jesus saying or showing uh, that he is with sinners like Zacchaeus or um, with women of bad reputation like Mary of Bethany or Mary Magdalene. I don't want to just do that. I want to go further back. And I want to point this out to you that from of the beginning, Jesus knew the gospel was going to be for the people who were surprised to hear it. They didn't think they were worthy. They, are, they were, me, little old me, they're surprised to think that there might be hope for them. So let me just take a moment here and in the manner of all good preachers from the beginning, make an appeal to everyone here who has ever felt like you ought to just quit church because you're not living right. If you're not watching this online and you think you shouldn't even come to church because you're not living right, I want to make this appeal to you. You do not get your life sorted out so you can come to church. You come to church so you can get your life sorted out. Do not miss the central gospel of hope. It is not a surprise to God that he weeps over Jerusalem because they would not receive him. All the way back, he knew that their false vanity of religion, their artificial righteousness would, would alienate. He always knew. It's in the Old Testament too. And that is why you will see this lesson. When Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the hope for all lost humanity, the one in whom there is life for those of us who must live death, the one who there is promise for those who live in need, this one who is the one of whom the prophet spoke and the one of whom the 
psalmist sung, this one who is the fulfillment of all things beautiful and true, he knew from the beginning that it was going to be an upside down world. And he knew he was going to save you by his choice, not your goodness. He knew it was going to be good news for shepherds, not princes. He knew it was going to be in lowly places like Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. He knew. Let me say to every one of you in the form of this appeal, God knew you were going to need mercy before he ever made a commitment to you. You ought to give him a chance to work on you. He knew you were going to need to repent before he ever gave you a chance. And that's why, my brothers and sisters, when he's looking for a line of Israel through whom he can birth himself into the order of the human story and live as a substitutionary Adam, the perfect life that we all need but cannot accomplish. He said, how shall I enter into this tragic story of death and tears? Where shall I stand on this stage of tragedy and disaster. I know a place that I can stand. Let me stand in the house of the sinners. Let me stand with the embarrassing ones. Let me stand with the one who doesn't shine like Joseph. Let me come through the house of Judah. And so Christ is born how? Through the tribe of Judah. Judah simply means praise. Praise is quit thinking about yourself and let's talk about God. That's really what, I know that's a very technical definition for you, but I love to give very technical and uh, philosophically deep. uh, It goes like this. Stop thinking about you and start talking about God. Judah needs to praise because there ain't much good going on with him. He needs to talk about God's goodness. The solution to your own heart of condemnation is to quit thinking about you and turn into a worshiper. You start thinking about how good God is. You see, hell shows up and says you ought to give up. Come on, somebody. Hell shows up and says you ought to quit. You're an embarrassment. You're a failure. Hell shows up and says you're a no good nobody from nowhere. You ought to quit. But Jesus shows up and gives you the opportunity to change the subject. Let's not talk about me anymore, old devil. Let's not talk about my flaws, oh evil one. Let me say it like this. I'm not good enough, but Jesus is good enough. I'm not holy enough, but Jesus is holy enough. And I've come to say, holy, holy, holy. I want to make my appeal to all of you who fight real condemnation in your life and hell would like you to quit. Uh, The more you think about what you have or haven't done, the more likely you are to quit. There is a direct uh, relationship between your focus upon you. If you're going to stay focused on you, not only uh, will you quit, but you probably should quit uh, uh, because you have missed the point of uh, the gospel and you've missed the point and the invitation uh, to this marriage supper of the Lamb. So I want to make again and again, you guys know I, I preach as much hope as I can. I preach as much grace as I can. If I'm going to err, I want it to be err on the side of mercy. And uh, so I, I, I want to confess to you that the longer we serve God, the more difficult it is for us uh, to have the heart of um, a, 
a, a savior, uh, we tend to start having more the heart of an adjudicator. Um, we have the heart of, uh, in some way, uh, assessing uh, people's good and, and bad. And it's not just us. It's, it's a human problem because it's representative, we've, as we've been talking about on Wednesday nights, and our partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, we criticize everything and everybody, even God. We judge everything and everybody. And so the natural state of our life is criticism and cynicism. This is the product. You build your tree house on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is going to surround you? Criticism and cynicism. Uh, the tree of life produces a childlike innocence in you because you're so focused on him. You're not particularly interested in other things that provoke the same cynicism and criticism. You begin to develop this childlike almost innocence in God because you're thinking about what? Whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are pure. You're thinking about righteous things. You're thinking about good things. And you become harmless. You become the person uh, who will not harm. You become the person who does not seek gossip. Why? You're not living in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You don't know what they did or didn't do. You weren't there. You just got a phone call. Don't have time to preach about that, although it needs sometimes. Uh, Luke 15, the, the, the chapter of lost things. There's three parables in Luke 15, and they're very important. Um, the first one is the parable of the lost sheep. The second one is the parable of the lost son. And the third one is the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. So it goes sheep, coin, son. Thing, thing, person. All right? In all three stories, there is a similar structure. Now, who is Jesus saying this to? He's saying it to his critics. Um, there is a similar structure. It goes like this. Number one, something's lost. Do you understand that? His critics are like, yeah. Then they find it. Do you understand that? Pharisees are like, yeah. Jesus says, and then what do they do? They celebrate. Do you understand that? They're like, yeah. 99 sheep, you lose one. Yeah, you go look for it. And then when you find it, what? You're happy. Jesus says to his critics, you know how to value a thing. Let's talk the second story. A woman has a coin as part of her marital endowment. She values it very, very much. It's part of the culture of the time. She loses one. What does she do? She cleans the house, honey. I mean, it's spring cleaning, fall cleaning, Christmas cleaning, and mother-in-law coming to visit cleaning all at once. <laughs> Ain't no cleaning like mother-in-law coming to visit cleaning. That's the cleanliness of the clean. In fact, if you clean like that, you don't even have to pray. You're already saved. <laughs> What does she do? She finds the coin. Someone say, score one. Thank you, she finds the coin. Jesus says, you guys understand this, right? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. She had something valuable, she loses it. She finds it. She throws a party. Jesus says, yeah, yeah, she throws a party. Awesome. Score. Let me tell you another story. This time we're not going to lose a thing. We're going to lose a person. Oh, you guys need to think about the consequences of that. This time we're not going to lose a thing. We're going to lose a person. So the person is lost, the son. And the father wants him to come home. But the father understands the uniqueness of autonomy. The son has to come home. So the father doesn't lock his other son up and go seek the son that is lost. He waits and he waits. 
Now, a lot of us, we struggle to do this with lost loved ones. You have to wait. You stand on the porch and pray. You stand on the porch and say, I believe God is going to work. You speak faith in life while they are learning how to eat pig slop. Don't show up and buy them a meal when they're eating pig slop. Let them eat that pig slop. You stand right up there on that porch and say, even the dogs in mom and dad's house eat better than that. You see? You see? And so, then the son comes home. And what does the father do? Something was lost. Something is found. He comes home. And the father's like, score one for dad. Let's throw a party. So we have three stories. Three things are lost. They're all the same except for what? The elder brother. Here is the problem with human religion. We know how to value things. We don't know how to value people. And so when people get on our nerves, we're done with them. Now, I'm not saying there aren't circumstances where it's not, the people should be, I'm not talking as though spiritual forgiveness is the same thing as someone not paying a debt to society. Uh, Just as the church is anointed for spiritual purposes, the Bible teaches us the magistrate and the judge, all of those are uh, placed by God for the purposes of justice. I'm not trying to take this too far. I'm talking about spiritual concepts here. We have a difficulty forgiving the younger brother because of the resentment where we think we are a better son than he is. The solution to this is quit looking at the younger brother and start thinking about the father who rejoices, the father who loves. This is the different role of the believer and this, or, or as the church goer. And as a church, we have to remember. So let me say it this way. All of us tell the story of Joseph to our children. And yes, it is awkward and we probably shouldn't tell the story of Judah to him at too early of an age. That's not what I don't, don't misunderstand. But I want you to see, we celebrate the Josephs. God chooses the Judas. So let me say it like this. God would like to use you to fulfill his purpose in your world. No, you're not worthy. That's not the point. Are you a worshiper? God would like to anoint you as a testimony and a witness in your world. Are you worthy? No, that's not the point. Are you a worshiper? Can you stand in a broken family and say, I will serve you, O Lord, while I wait for people, brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters. I wait for them to come back to bow their knee to repent. I will worship you in spite of the struggle. I will worship you in spite of the pain. I will worship you in spite of the disappointment. I will keep my eyes on you. I choose you today. It's not an accident that I stand here. I choose this place. I will not allow the ugly story to stop my heart.
heart of praise and my mouth of worship. But I, stand with me all across the house. Lift your hand. Say it with me. Lord Jesus, I will live as a worshiper. Would you tell them that right now? I will live as a worshiper. I will live as one who lifts up praise and honor to your name. I will live, live as one who celebrates your goodness all across the land. I choose your way. Come on, somebody, right now. Would you pour out your heart to God? I preach to some of you. Some of you need to be coming to this altar right now. You need to be stepping out, coming to lift your hands and saying, I choose you today, oh God. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us. Thank you.